Welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, conversations with interesting people who have a lot to offer. And our guest today is no exception. Her name is Liz Houck. She's the author of Homemade, a story of grief, groceries, showing up, and what we make when we make dinner. The book was recommended to me by several friends, and the fact that Liz is a hometown gal from the Boston area made it irresistible. It's such a well-written piece about troubled youth, city life, and how a simple act of cooking and dining together can make some difference. So let's explore the concept of homemade as we go on mic now with Liz Howe. I love the subtitle, A Story of Grief, Groceries, Showing Up, and What We Make When We Make Dinner. Love it, love it, love it. And by the way, you're only here because of the lady who's accompanying you today. You realize that, don't you? (laughs) I do, I do. Your mom. In so many ways. She's great. She's here. And you're also here because a mutual friend of ours, John O'Neill, who's a cabaret artist I've had on my radio show many times, wonderful guy, said, Jordan, you got to look into this. It's amazing. And I thought, okay, I'll believe you, John. And it is amazing. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. And and thanks to John O'Neill for connecting. All right. Well, we're all connected, and that's the important thing. The book is called Homemade. It's gotten a lot of attention. The New York Times did a beautiful review. It's, it's really a simple story, but it has a lot of depth to it. Let's talk a little bit about the title, because I talked about the subtitle, which is very explanatory. What does homemade mean to you? I think it works. Homemade, I think, works on two levels. You know, it's about food and food that was made in a group home. Um, And then this idea that we're all made in homes and who we are is made in part, at least, uh, in in the places that we come from. Beautiful answer. I was hoping we'd get into that, and we will. Let's talk a bit about the uh, the grief that you felt losing your wonderful dad, a, a real role model for you and a great friend. And let's explain, because this is the crux of the story, what your dad did. So my dad was a social worker. Early in his career, he was a direct caregiver. Um, and then later in his career, he was the kind of a f- a financial operator or the in, in charge of the, the financial aspects of an agency that he founded with his business partner, Jerry Wright. Um, and part of Jerry's mission was to keep kids who would otherwise have been in institutions living in, in the community was his kind of radical vision mm-hmm. um, for care. Um, and so my dad and Jerry worked for, for decades. I think my dad worked there for 34 years. Before you know, before he died, working with these, um, working with these kids, um, in a series of uh, group homes throughout Boston. You describe the building itself very well because you grew up, you know, having some connection to it with your dad doing it. Describe it just briefly for us. What kind of structure was it? So it was a red brick building. It is a red brick building. It's still there on the corner. People in Boston, you know, many people who've read it, you know, have said, I've driven by that building Mm. or I got off the bus, you know, across the street from that building. It originally, I think it was a dentist's office. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a red brick building that is two floors. Um, and it's, you know, inside it is, it's pretty beige, you know, the <laughs> stairs are pretty, you know, are, are carpeted, um, and are, are pretty dull. Um, and the downstairs holds offices and then the upstairs, uh, is where the young people lived. So there were mm. four bedrooms, um, five rooms, one of them was a staff room and then, a uh, kitchen, a small kitchen, um, which actually is not much larger than the studio we're in now, which yeah. is kind of amazing in terms of space. That's where, you know, um, 
the 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 place is sort of a character in the story. It's why I want I felt like I needed to really describe it because so much of the story takes place going back and forth between the kitchen, you know, and the and the dining room. I certainly mm-hmm. never was in any of the kids' bedrooms, or we didn't spend except for you know one time time in the TV room. So much of it, you know, takes place really going back and forth between this kitchen and this um, dining room, which which feels is like kind of like most of, of us, right? That's the, right. The That's kitchen exactly is where the action thinking. is. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and unremarkable, but it's the conversations, yeah, right, yeah. that make it. Uh, so, so it let's is. just give a little more context. Then I want to jump right into some of these boys who you interacted with and what this story really is about. You're a teacher. You, you, you're an English major. You said, by the way, a great writer who never wrote a book and then writes <laughs> this amazing book called Homey. But you're a teacher. Um, a Spanish teacher, not an English teacher. Spanish teacher, uh-huh. working, I think, in Chicago or, or no, a, a Midwest somewhere for a while. I was a, a volunteer teacher for two years after I graduated right. from college, from That's BC. Right. Um, and then at the time when I was doing this program, I was working at Boston Latin, which is where I had also graduated from as a Spanish teacher. So you and your dad had this idea before he passed and got sick and all that. Um, And the idea was to initiate a cooking sort of program? That's right. So we had um, been both teaching CCD at our church and he was saying he he missed the his early days as a care worker and was trying to a direct care worker and was trying to think of a way um, that he could connect with the kids at the house um, in the in the same way that you know he was connecting with the kids in his CCD class. Right. And I kind of joked like, oh, you could do a cooking program because he loved he loved cooking shows, you know. Um, and it, and it was really a kind of a joke when I said it. And then it was like, well, you know, who is – are there cooking programs, you know, in, in terms of thinking about um, the kids as teenagers and some of them going to be aging out? And, you know, and he was like, oh, you know, he um, – you know, I say in the book, you know, I – you know, he was like that. You know, that would be neat. We could be like Rosalindale's own, <laughs> you know, Jacques Pepin and, and his daughter Claudine, you know. And Julia Child, yeah, the, the, the sure. approach. Cool. We'll get into the evolution of it. But um, – tragedy strikes when your father uh, has a diagnosis of cancer and and that sort of shatters the world. We all know what it can do to families. And it did that to you, didn't it? Yeah, it's it's devastating. When did you pick up the mantle and decide to pay tribute, in a sense, to his dream and start working? Uh, Just put uh, chronologically and also the years, because we should mention that this took place in the early 2000s, I guess, right? Yep, that's right. about 2011. Yep, that's right. Uh, Well, my dad died in December of 2004. Mm -hmm. um, And then sometime in 2005, I had dinner with his uh, business partner and kind of mentioned the idea, you know, that um, my dad and I had had this idea and would he ever let me kind of try it, Um, you know, and initially, you know, Jerry was like, no, (laughs) Um, you know, that's not really what we do, you know. Uh, And then it was probably six months after that, that he left me a message that my dad's business partner left me a message. And one of the kids had um, in an effort to thaw a hamburger using a steak knife had cut his hand open. Um, And so Jerry left me a message that was like, it appears we may be in the business, uh, you know, in in need of some sort of cooking program. So if you're interested, we could give it a try, you know. Before we jump into that. Um, you mentioned when your father passed, and 2004 was a very important year in this area for one big, gigantic reason, Red the Red Sox, Sox finally right. breaking the curse. I know a lot of people who uh, were alive then who are no longer with us now. Mm-hmm. That was such a seminal moment just 
in terms of pride and and local sports pride, wasn't it? And community. Yeah. Right? I mean, there yeah. were, I feel like the kind of joy, the like mutual shared joy was palpable. You know, I um, was working, uh, you know, also at um, the Brigham at that time. And the, you know, the kind of the Fenway area, you know, oh, yeah. was really um, yeah. infused with a palpable joy that year. So your dad uh, left a lot behind uh, besides the love of the family. He he was a, a milestone guy when it came to caring for kids in his own inimitable way. So there was a hole there. You're going in now to do this cooking thing a year or so later to fill a void. And uh, was the, let's talk about the first couple of experiences. Were they anything as you predicted they might be or thought they might be? Uh, you know, yes and no. I When I started, um, I didn't know how long it would last. I certainly didn't go into it thinking like this is going to be a three-year project and I'm going to be in this space on a weekly basis for a while, you know. Um, but in my mind, I felt like it was something that I could do that felt – um, constructive, you know, and that was outside of my own head and grief, you know. Um, when I showed up the first night, I went with, um, you know, Jerry had told me, don't bring anything, you know, we'll we'll meet with the kids, you know. And I, you know, I mean, at that time, I had worked with teenagers for, for several years and was like, I'm, I'm not going into this empty-handed, you know. So I, like, brought brownies as, you know, literally mm. a taste of what maybe we would do together, Um you know, and Jerry was kind of skeptical of the brownies. And one of the kids, you know, made a comment about like, you know, bribing him. Um, and uh, yeah. It's almost the dance starts right off the bat with you, an outsider. Who is this white woman? Let's face it, most of the kids are brown or black. What is her deal, dog, if I can use that expression? What is her deal? What is she looking to do. And you had to do that. You had to earn their trust and uh, and also kind of understand where they're coming from, I guess. Yeah, no, that that's right. That's that's right. Um, it, it was definitely, there was definitely a choreography to it. The characters are all real. Names have been changed, but they're all real young men at the time. They instantly become players in this story. And the main guy right off the bat is Leon. And I know you'll talk with me about him. I think the point that I take away, a lot of takeaways here, Liz, is you can't pigeonhole people, even people who are young and seem to be stereotypically in that groove. You can't really pigeonhole them. They are complex. Or you can, but shouldn't, right? Or you can, but people do, exactly. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the, the characters that stood out, Leon being the most prominent. Your first encounter with Leon was what? Uh, so I had met him... Um, I had, a, I had met him at a party um, for for Jerry, that J Jerry's wife threw him uh, belatedly his 70th birthday party that she had um, postponed. His 70th birthday was the February after my dad died. And, you know, he, he didn't want to have any kind of celebration. And so then the next year, uh, that would have been 2006, February of 2006. Mm. My, my, my sister and I were going to a BC basketball game, actually, using my dad's tickets, still had his mm. name on them. Uh, and there were, I saw kind of two kids there, and I was like, I bet those are kids from community care, you know. Mm. Uh, and so we went over to, you know, we went over to them, and I was, you know, kind of chatting with um, with the two of them. And one of one was kind of more chatty than the other one. 
other one was kind of, you know, standing behind him and again, skeptical of like, okay, who's talking to us? They were definitely there for the food and the, you know, the kind of night out one of the, one of the house parents brought them. Um, and I realized then that at the next meeting, um, when I went to the house to meet the kid, you know, or when I went to talk to Jerry, not when I went to meet with the kids, but when I went to touch base with Jerry the, the, the week before I went to meet the kids, I recognized him that, you know, he was one of the um, kids who I had met at Jerry's party, um, who is a remarkable, you know, who who is a had a remarkable kind of air to him, both um, in terms of his kind of heart and personality, but also his physical stature, you know, um, in terms of his uh, his shoulders and his the you know. The he, yeah, he had a, he, a lifelong medical condition. He I don't want to give anything away. It's, yeah, it's not a, a neurological but I, disorder. He had a neurological uh-huh. disorder, and that sidelined him in the hospital many, many times during the course of his, his life. His life. Mm-hmm. But he also is, of all the characters, I call them characters, but they're real people, he's also the one that sort of is the, the elder, the old soul among the young mm-hmm. guys, isn't That's he? That's right. And he, he was several, you know, he was several years older than the other kids, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was engaging in, a, you know, engaging in a different way, too, in terms of... Um, Really, kind of seeking out relate, you know, seeking out relationships, having conversations, offering his, you know, his take on things to people who are interested in listening. The book is called Homemade, and um, it's not a happy ending uh, book. I mean, there are a lot of issues with these kids, and some of them are unresolved, and some of them are tragic. Some of them are uplifting. I know that was your intent, not to paint this rosy picture that I just go in there and start cooking in the kitchen and everything will be great. It was bumpy. I, it, all all of it was bumpy. That's right. That's right. It was week to week. You know, we we it was one week at a time, really one meal at a time. And the idea, I mean, I certainly would have been uh, better positioned to do some sort of homework help program or a tutoring program, uh, like I had run, you know, in Chicago and different versions mm. of which I, you know, did at Latin. Um, but there, the kids weren't necessarily interested in that. I, I did pitch that at one point. I was like, oh, if we wanted to do a second night a week of like a like a no. homework snack program that no. didn't go over well um, but this idea of you know no matter what your what your situation is people are hungry you know and especially teenagers food is a draw yeah. you know and uh, cooking and making a meal together was a way it was a way to kind of make community and also kind of fill a of, you know, the tiny void of like one meal, you know, a meal. Yeah, no, and, and as somebody who's had to learn to survive in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> like a lot of us, I mean, just the, the the mere task of cracking an egg and whipping up an egg, it, it might sound a little mundane, but it's a, it's a feeling, for me, it's a feeling of accomplishment. And it seemed to be that of the young guys that you were trying to help. Yeah, no. A lot of the time. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, Because there's, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, a sustaining thing in knowing Mm. that you can do it, you know, on your own. Or even, uh, you know, there are different moments where, you know, there was this question of like, well, should I add more sugar or what should I, you know, and it's like, well, taste it. Mm. You know, if you want to add more sugar, you can add more sugar. You know, if you, you know, in terms of heat, I would suggest you do medium. It's going to burn. But, faster, but you gave but them sort of the license to, to mm-hmm. explore, which a lot of people probably never gave them <laughs> in, in life. I mean, outside of school, perhaps, but it's tough. Well, and cooking lends itself yeah. uh, lends itself to that, you know, in in space and time. Uh, I think. There, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of funny stuff too, including the food itself. I mean, it's not funny. I mean, but I mean what they like, and they're teenagers. So, chicken stir fry, big. Yeah. Right. That was one of our usual. That's right. <laughs> yeah, kids get into habits. I don't care what whether they're city kids or rural kids, they get into these habits and things that they like. Dessert was a big part too, especially when you had birthdays. Mm-hmm. You recall several stories of birthdays and. Some of them make you almost tear up a little bit when you realize these kids never had anyone caring about them enough to have a birthday cake. That I know the one that the one that you're thinking about. That one was particularly heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the other young men. Uh, all of them under eighteen or so, right? Or under twenty. So th- there were a couple. The ones with um, you know, medical issues. Yeah. You know, were were ones who were uh, older than eighteen. Right. There, there were there was one. Leon is one, and then um, Joseph is another later. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the others are under eighteen. That's right. There. So between the ages of fourteen and eighteen. There's um, a phrase. Uh, we'll just use the acronym. Uh, when a new kid enters the home, you can you can tell us the acronym first of all. The FNG. The FNG. I think people can guess the F. New new guy is the is the the, the NG. NG. That's right. So it's it's like a little bit of Lord of the Flies. It's sometimes it's survival of the fittest. And these are street kids. These are kids who are survivors despite incredible odds. So man, walking in as as a new as a newbie is a lot of pressure. Yeah, I think that that that's right. Now, mo- most of the kids, most of the kids who I met, and most of the kids who were placed in this particular place had been other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, most most of that, with the exception of two two kids that I'm thinking of. There are a couple of examples of where long lost parents, mothers, or whatever would resurface, and the readers hoping that things will work out, and they don't always work out, even after they resurface. Yeah, no, that's right. Tough to it's the reco- difference between real life and stories. Yeah, you know? tough to recall those. I would imagine and write about those. I mean, it, it's important, but must have been emotionally draining to think about those again. Yeah, well, and I mean, and in real time, it's hard when you're working with people and you, when it's teenagers, when it's teenagers' parents, when you have an idea of how you think things should go, and you can see in real time that it's mm. going in a different way. There's anger, a lot of it. Was it Carlos? I'm trying to recall. And and you can understand, you don't condone the behavior, but you can certainly understand where it's coming from. Going in, I mean, you'd work with kids, you'd taught in city schools, but were you aware of the type of life that a lot of these kids are undergoing, the extent of their pain? Oh, I think, um, you know, I I had worked with kids who had, who had tough home situations. Um, so I... I had some, you know, had some experience with kids with with complicated home lives, um, but it's it's different. It's different when you have a sustained relationship with somebody week to week, and you know, you know, you joke around with them, mm. you know, about one thing, and then you then something terrible happens, you know, in terms right. of that sort of uh, roller coaster. Continuum. One, one of the things that I noted, and uh, may just be me, but there are times when they. They believe you're lying or you haven't fulfilled a promise. You didn't bring a certain dessert or you didn't arrive on time. It's almost as though they started to rely on you. Then they they did like you. They I would I would actually say some of them loved you and they just felt let down if you if you were just late. And that has to I would imagine be a symptom of the the chronic pain that they're going through. I'm I'm guessing. 
I, I think I think that's right. I think I think uh, you know um, it's hot. You know the idea trust, right? Or mm. uh, you know ideas like like unconditional love. Like how do you know that or learn that when even your most uh, kind of you, you don't feel that from your you know your most direct people where you think that should come from so there were you know there was a space of time when it was particularly uncertain whether or not we would continue you know whether the program would continue um when kids kind of stopped showing up after after one of the kids moved out um and i definitely had the sense you know and i i had you know kind of enough training working with kids and in in situations where you know i definitely uh, intellectually knew that it was easier for them to kind of quit on me before mm. kind of me, you know, having the sense that like, this is probably not going to last anyway. And it makes more sense in their minds to, to quit on me before I kind of quit mm. on them. And then, but as a, as a person, you know, in that context, it's still like, well, you know, but I, there are moments mm-hmm. and people will find them when they read the book homemade. There are moments when Things happen for the better, and you just go, yay! I mean, when when some of the kids turn back and you know express appreciation or even let you know that you made a difference, that's got to be huge when you're in that situation in the in the battleground that is the streets. Um, in, in terms of those points of connection, were certainly so you know so so meaningful. The. Subtitle includes the word grief, and it's a story of grief and dealing with it. How do you think you evolved in in your grieving process due to this activity? How did it work for you? Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I I don't I don't think. What do I think? I mean, I I think grief is loops. You know, I don't think you. I don't think you start grief. You know, I think. Uh, when you lose something and you feel this kind of sense of grief, that grief doesn't go away. You know, I think mm-hmm. from the outside, y- you have this sense that there must be, or I had this sense that there's like a, a timeline, you know, like the grief is bad and intense. And then, you know, you were, you can somehow figure out the way to work through it. Yeah, and the then five it gets stages, easier. Uh, yeah, and it doesn't work uh, that way. And it, it just no, doesn't work no, that way. No, you know, you, you, you see a, and I, I mean, we've all lost people we mm-hmm. cherish. And you you see a, an old notation, a card that was left over or a voicemail that wasn't erased. It does make a difference. But there is also something to be said. Or a piece of clothing or like yeah. a, a thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said, though, for honoring someone's life with with uh, duty and, and with a mission to do good. I mean, that's what I take away from it. You really – not to, you know, you, you know, weren't looking for a laudatory acclaim, but you were looking to make a difference, to follow your dad's dictum and make a difference in these kids' lives. And do you feel that you accomplished that? Uh, you know, I, I like to think that the boys that I worked with are men now in kitchens of their own, mm. you know, maybe making stir fry or quesadillas. And when they like add extra sugar or like have the confidence <laughs> to like you know to to make a thing for themselves that they you know kind of remember that we that we did that together you you're you're very humble about this but i absolutely believe and i'm sure readers will agree that there is a difference and because they had nothing they didn't have that kitchen they didn't have that experience of sitting around and eating together i mean most people don't sit around and eat together anymore i mean most people 
they grab and go, you know, and, and they eat at different times. I thought uh, there was one scene where one of the kids wanted lobster. Mm-hmm. You remember that, of course. Yeah. You wrote it. Yeah. And, and it reminded me of, of all of us when we're, you know, we don't ask for much and we don't have much. But, boy, would we love that thick, juicy steak once in a while, you know, as a treat. Well, and a little bit of a test. You know, I don't think when I don't you're talking about Wesley and I yeah. and I don't I don't necessarily think when he asked, he believed it was a possibility. It was kind of like you told us anything, you know, so like this is what I want. It was a test. You know, yeah. and he and he also knew that was a really complicated birthday. Uh, you know, he knew that he was going to be moving out on his own, you know, and that was not something that he could talk about with me or mm. and I and I don't know who he talked you know who if he talked to the house parents or his counselors or his team of support people who were you know there to kind of help him through this transition uh I don't know how he talked about that with other people but with me it was like you know I I want lobster because it's going to be my last birthday, you know. Mm. So then it was like, okay, like we're going to do it. And then it it becomes complicated because Jerry's like, we can't. At that point, the place was, you know, there was the idea that the the house was going to be closing. And he's like, what are people going to say? And I was like, who are people? Like who's going to, you know, like then people should be talking about like what's going to happen to these kids when like places like this are closed, not – you know, a uh, $200 lobster dinner for 10 kids, you know, for one who who knows yeah. when the last time he'll have that is. There's another individual that I, we should single out, Arlette, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arlette who, Grant Brown. Yeah, who's been like a sidekick to your dad and, and has been there for many years and is, is one of those people that you know she runs the joint. She's great. Mm-hmm. She's really great. But she has a, a heart the size of Dorchester, so. That's right. That's Greatly. right. She's she's tremendous. Yeah, she comes across as somebody you'd really love to know. Mm-hmm. Um, couple she would of- make the kids these blankets for every holiday, and the kids who were there uh, for multiple holidays, like had them, like Leon, for example. And I was just talking to her and one of her friends recently, and remembering that when I went to visit Leon in the hospital, he had that's what he would pack. He'd pack a mm. a hooded sweatshirt, the outfit, you know, he went in on, you know, and if he was hospitalized and wasn't expecting it, he would be like, "Bring my blankets," <laughs> and they, and you know, and he would have the blankets that Arlette made for him, like one stacked on the other, stacked on the other, these fleece blankets. Just just a few more things I do want to mention. One more young man, Frank, because mm-hmm. he's like the the last one out the door, like Sam Malone and Cheers, you know, closing the bar. <laughs> door. Yeah, uh, such a deep and interesting individual, and and the sweetness about him in a way, uh, as tough as it is to live like he lived. Talk a little bit about Frank with us, if you would. Yeah, so Frank Frank was actually the kid who was standing behind Leon at the party. You know, I realized I didn't know all along that I had, you know, kind of met him first, but I realized at some point that, you know, that that was him. Um, he was a, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a quiet, you know, he showed up, you know, at the first meeting he was not did not express any kind of interest, you know, necessarily in um, the program, but in terms of showing, you know, he showed up the first week that we were cooking and, you know, and he, you know, kind of cut and listened to instructions and he, um, you know, and and he becomes the one who's there, you know, every week kind of helping Mm. almost every week. He had some weeks when he wasn't interested and he Mm. would say like, I'm not doing it this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he knew what he was interested in doing and what he wasn't interested in doing, but he, um, 
Yeah, no, he becomes uh, he, he without without Frank there. I don't think there would have been a program. Yeah, he he's sort of uh, the go to guy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's appropriate that he's one of the last to to wrap things up. Yeah, and, and he it, was the tallest and the youngest, so he yeah. he, he had also he'd been there the longest. Um, one more question, uh, more of a technical question. And again, you're an English major, but man, are you able to put things together in a book like this? Great. The dialogue. Now, uh, obviously, you're recreating the dialogue, right? I mean, you didn't record these kids, uh, but you must have had you must have a great ear because they are alive on these pages. They are talking to you and us. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. I um, was also a Spanish, you know, also a Spanish right. major. So that attention to kind of language and translation, um, I think, is uh, definitely part of my part of my methodology. Um, and in telling this particular story, you know, when uh, after the place closes, and when you know Jerry said you you have to tell the story as you know it that something happened here, so that people know. Uh, so that people know that something happened in this place. I knew that the the heart of the the story to me is these conversations with the kids. You know, there was no, um, you know, that kind of life and that community and that kind of space in the like in the moment in the conversation. It is the story. The story is not the before story of how people kind of ended up in this situation or were placed in this. You know, were placed in this place. Um, it's not about what happens before and it's not about what happens after. And to me, to tell the story of, you know, um, of what's happening in real time, that that is com- that is conversation. And you, you mentioned these are now adults, those who are lucky enough to be with us still, because some obviously aren't. But have you been in touch with any of them? Have any of them uh, had a chance to see the book yet or comment on it uh i i am not sure if any, if any of them have seen the book i um I have only kind of stayed in touch with their stories through the house parents who um who they're you know in touch with and and with arlette for example um you know i am on facebook and had you know kind of given my information to a, a couple of the kids you know as they were leaving and felt it was very important that um that because of the nature of our relationship and the kind of power dynamic, that uh, that it be up to them to reach out to me as opposed to kind of me to reach mm. out to them. Mm. You know, it was important to me, you know, in kind of telling the story and changing, you know, their names and, and small details so that they're um, to respect their privacy um, while also, you know, telling what I think, you know, is an important story that I also believe I've told in a way that if they – if they find the book or listen mm. to the book, you know, yeah, it's an audio that book, they but, would be able sure. to um, recognize themselves and recognize, uh, you know, what, who I believe we were to each other right. for a while. There are a lot of takeaways. I'll just end with this. Showing up, uh, that in my business, showing up is, is 80%. Just show up, be there, you know, <laughs> report for duty. And I think when you're dealing with people who are usually let down, a lot, just being there, just being in the room, and then adding the elements that you did uh, is a is a great gift. And I, you know, I think I think that's I think in terms of community, you know, when we think about ways, um, you know, now as we're kind of emerging from pandemic and in this strange space, I mean, that is that is a thing that we can do in this time where, uh, you know, it's 
maybe not unclear what we can do as we can we can show up for each other and there are so many um, big and small mm. ways that we can show up for our neighbors. Liz Hauck, H-A-U-C-K. You have a website, lizfrancishauck.com, and people can find out more there. The book is available everywhere, certainly at Amazon, and it's an audio book. You did the audio book yourself, which it makes sense from your <laughs> voice and your heart, and uh, really well done. And thanks again to your mom for uh, being a great press agent. <laughs> My mom is a great press agent for me, so it goes hand in hand. Liz, lovely to meet you, and, and good luck with uh, this successful book and much more to come. Thanks for having me. Liz Hauk, the book Homemade, a story of grief, groceries showing up, and what we make when we make dinner. I want to say thank you to you for listening, as always. Great to have you aboard. Remember to go to jordanrich.com for much more. And as always, we close by saying, be well so you can do good. Take care.